of each one of our hearts would be holy and pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. And God, may we, when we talk about your bride tonight, not make her husband angry. May we speak of her with reverence and sobriety. Give us a new vision, God. Restore to us the joy of salvation and the hope for the world that you are um, working out and in your church. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Friends, just before Jesus ascended into heaven and took his seat of authority upon which he is ruling creation even now until all things come under his feet, he turned to his friends and he said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So concentric circles. Like, you, you'll be my witnesses uh, you know, in, in, on UTC's campus and in Chattanooga and in the nation and to the world. That, that's what Jesus is saying. When, this, when, this, when you receive power and the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you're going to get sent out to be my witnesses. And days later, when Peter was preaching about Jesus, a great wind suddenly filled the room and the Holy Spirit came, filled the entire house, and little flames of fire rested upon each one of their heads. Keely, would you put up that image that I sent you? Perhaps you remember this image from a few weeks back when we talked about the tabernacle. If you weren't here, it's okay. Um, We talked about the tabernacle. Um, and, And the flames, which represented the awesome power of God, they came down from the mountain to dwell among his people. So when the Israelites had had left out of Egypt, God saved them through the waters of the Red Sea or the Sea of Reeds, and they wandered through the wilderness for a bit, and they came to the base of Mount Sinai. They looked at the top of the mountain and were terrified because there was just cloud and and fire, thunder and lightning and clouds and fire, and, and the presence of God was on top of this mountain. And the great surprise is that the fire that was on top of the mountain came down. God didn't demand that everybody ascend. God came down and dwelt among them. And well, now those flames have come and dwelt over the people. And do you see what every Israelite who was gathered in Jerusalem for the Passover, do you see what they would have thought of when little flames like that were dwelling upon each person's head? And what that might have meant for them, knowing their own history. That in their mind, when they saw a flame above a dwelling, above, above, above a, a house of sorts, it meant that God's presence was there. And now looking around this room, in the middle of this sermon that Peter's preaching about Jesus, a great wind comes, the Holy Spirit descends, and, and little flames of fire come and dwell on all of them. The awesome power and presence of God is no longer on the mountain or in the temple. Each person, and more specifically all God's people together, are now a temple to the living God. He has come down and dwells in them just as Jesus and his prophets foretold. This is the moment they were waiting for. And in a new act of God, the church was created on that day. If you don't know about Acts chapter 2, friends, please read it. You're in college. You can read something. When Jesus said to his disciples to wait for the power of the Holy Spirit and that they would be sent out, this was his plan. His plan to take his message, to invite the world to repent and believe in Jesus and enter into his kingdom, his plan to do this is through the people collectively who had these little flames of fire above them, these people who were the church of God. The church isn't some sideshow. It's not some gas station to fill up individual Christians as if the individuals are the point and the church just has to exist as a support group. 
some institutional support for Christians who can't wing it on their own. The thing God did and is doing, the thing that God did and is doing is the church. God's plan for all the world is straight through the church. She is the one He is equipping and sending. Or do you think it's just you? And what is this church like? What is she like? Perhaps you can only really think of a Sunday worship service when we use the word church. That is the way it's used so often in our culture today. But I want you to see how the early Christians talked about the church. If you were to have heard about the church and asked what it was like then in Acts chapter 2, you would have heard something like this from Acts 2 verses 42 through 47. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. What were they like? What was happening? That the, the fire came down and dwelt among them. If you read um, in Acts chapter 2, they, they, Peter told them all to repent and believe, and they did, and they started following Jesus, and this is what happens. that They, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. To the teaching that's, for, that's authoritatively from Jesus and to one another, they devoted themselves devoted, what a big word, and to the breaking of bread and to prayers, which the breaking of bread is likely a communion sort of symbol, but, but we also know from, because later in this passage there's this just sharing food with each other, so they're probably having communion together almost daily and then sharing meals together, and they were praying together. Verse 43, and all came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as anybody had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. Student interns, staff, and I've been talking to you recently, if you're in this room, about how important it is that our reputations actually do matter, Right? Listen, the early church had favor with all people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Okay, friends, I want you to imagine that you happen across some community that's actually doing this. Some community devoted to Jesus' teachings, eating together in their homes, praying for one another, taking care of each other's needs, and what you notice about them is that they receive just even their daily meals with glad and generous hearts, and they have favor with everybody. This is what the Lord has in mind for His church. This is what she ought to look like where she exists. And we are told that the Lord, not their strategic plan, not their marketing, not their small group ministry, not their tremendous outreach strategy, not the little methods that they use to get the word of Jesus out, that the Lord, they lived in response to Jesus in a new way. Quite frankly, because they believe that God is all-powerful and providing for their needs, and because Jesus represents His kingdom in a new way, they don't need to live in the normal ways that they live. Why am I hoarding all this stuff? Why do I have three cars and that guy has none? If I'm following Jesus and He takes care of all of my needs, that doesn't make any sense. They weren't doing all this because of specific commands. This is just the stuff that made sense to do in following Jesus. So this is how they were living, and the Lord added to their number daily. Because I swear to you, if you see a kingdom like this and you realize that your idols aren't working so well anymore, you might go, man, that sounds really nice to be at a community where everybody's sharing everything and they're all glad and generous and they've devoted themselves to each other. That sounds really, that sounds really great. And the Lord added to their number daily. Notice that what God does is form a community that lived in a certain way. He creates a new kind of tribe, a new people, and not a bunch of people who just make private commitments in their hearts, 
make personal faith decisions that nobody knows about, but whose lives look radically different from the world around them. The way forward is not a bunch of individuals, it's a new kind of community. In describing the community of the church, the authors of the New Testament employ a whole truckload of metaphors. It might be confusing trying to keep them all straight. And all of, all of the metaphors are communal. Here's a list of just a couple of the common ones. Would you put that list up, Keely? Right? So the church sometimes is called a family. It's compared to a family. Often it's called a building. These are just some examples. There's many, many verses with each of these metaphors. Just, I see so many of you taking notes. Um, so, you, you know, just in case you want to do that, you want to read the Bible, there you go. Um, I recommend it highly. Uh, but, but the church is called a family sometimes, a building other times, a body a lot. It's called a body a lot. Ephesians 1, Ephesians 4, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, body, body, body. And the church is called the bride. That's one of the richest metaphors. Each of these metaphors has its own strength. So look at these for just a minute. When we hear that the church is a family, can't that teach us about the love and fellowship that should be among us? When we hear that the church is a building, might we learn that God is building something in our midst and something should dwell within it? When we discover that the church is a body, it can help us understand our interdependence and that we actually need one another. How alone do you feel? Today, while we're sitting in this room, a friend of mine just came back from India. He had spent five days preaching to a bunch of pastors in India who, who have their own churches. And get, the, get a load of this kind of pressure, right? I said, what are you doing out there? He said, I'm preaching this sermon to these, these, these pastors. And I said, well, what for? And he said, well, they just don't have a lot of education and seminaries and those kinds of things. And so my, one of his mentors called him and said, hey, I got this thing I can't do anymore. Could you go in my place and preach? And he said, yeah, I guess that sounds cool, like a new experience and whatever. What should I say? And, and this is what his friend told him. His mentor said, his mentor said, listen, man, whatever you preach for five days, it's probably what they're going to preach for the next year before we go back. So just make sure that it's central to Jesus, okay? Get a load of that. How much pressure that puts on you? Whatever you're going to say for five days, a bunch of people are going to tell their church for the next year, okay? But listen, this, this is so great. While we're sitting in this room stressed about finals or, or, or major changes or whatever, you don't have to worry about India because God has people there. Tonight, actually, right as we're finishing up, friends of ours in other cities around the country who worship God on Tuesday nights will just be beginning their worship services, God's church is myriad. There are, there are Christians right now in this city. Right now, one of my friends in, in one of a, 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 it's a kind of small group. I don't really know what to, to call it without getting into the weeds of it. Um, he's serving the homeless in the city tonight. Other friends in the city who don't need to be panicking about, is God even present on the college campus when I read these statistics? Oh my goodness. And I go, brother, I got it. I'm on the college campus. Don't worry about it. Not alone, of course. If you don't know this, friends, there's so many students in our midst that come and make all this stuff happen. You put up, I sit in my office and drink coffee and write words, and then other people carry all these things out and paint these signs and do decor and play music, and they're, just, and, and they're stressed out about their finals and stuff too. But they come in early on a Tuesday and practice worship songs to help lead us in worship. God's body is diverse, and we all have different parts to play. And when some of us are suffering, others of us are rejoicing. And when some of us are rejoicing, others of us are suffering. And some of us have wants and needs. And all of this stuff is working together. Anyway, I'm laboring the point. That's not in my notes. Sorry, i got to move. Um, when we discover the church as a body, though, it can help us understand our interdependence, that we need each other. 
And the church being a bride focuses our attention on how much God desires us and lifts up our call to holiness and purity. These metaphors serve purposes. There's so many of them about the church as if one metaphor couldn't do it justice. It's actually not wise to just pick one metaphor and just always talk about the church that way because if one metaphor worked, more metaphors wouldn't have been used. There's a ton of them. The church is like a field. The church is like wheat. The church is like branches on a vine. The bride one is really helpful for me because I imagine that if you asked me what my bride is like, Anna, my wife's name is Anna Blythe, if you asked me what she is like, there is no way that one metaphor could do her justice. And if that's true of my wife, how much more true is it of all God's people? Friend, what if you don't know that the church is a family that you're a, and you're a part of it? What if you don't know that? If my son doesn't associate with me anymore, do you know it doesn't mean that he's actually not in my family? It just means that we're estranged from each other. If he doesn't come home for dinner, it doesn't mean he's not a part of my family, it just means he's not coming home for dinner. Which probably means he's scratching and clawing for food and he's fighting for seats at some other table and he's missing out on the encouragement and the challenge and the growth that comes from us being together. Just because you don't identify with the family or don't come home for dinner doesn't mean you're not a part of it. It just means we all suffer from the estrangement. And yet, how many of us try to live out our faith apart from the church? How many of us are isolated from the people of God and the means of grace that God provides for us in his community? Look, I know that church is messy. I know because it's made up of people like you and me. The old proverb that's been quoted by numbers of people in different ways is that if you finally find in your quest, if you finally find the perfect church, you know what you shouldn't do? Join it because you'll wreck it. That kind of story has been told over and over and over again. There isn't a community out there that, that everybody's on the way. Every church is a gathering of forgiven, beautiful sinners that God is making new, and you should expect it to be messy. But how many of us treat church as something, instead of a family or something God is building or an interdependent body or a bride, instead of, instead of understanding that my church is actually a community of people who all have their own lives and we're trying to figure this out together? How many of us, instead of looking at our churches like that, Instead, just treat church as something to be judged or evaluated. We'll go to Yelp or Facebook or something and leave a review and a star rating, but we'll never sign up for a membership class. We'll walk out of a sermon and talk about whether we liked or disliked it, but never about how God might be asking us to respond to His Word. Look, I've got, I have my own dealings with pride and all those kinds of things, and it, it probably matters to me somewhere. It doesn't in this moment at all. It might later. Whether you like or dislike my sermon. It matters to me that you respond to God. And so if you walk out and somebody says, man, how was the sermon tonight? And you're like, man, I think Jason did like an okay job, like seven out of 10 or four out of 10. I've heard him do better. He, he went off on too many tangents. He didn't wear shoes again. It's, it's distracting me. You know, whatever. You know, you, I, none of, I don't care. I don't, I don't want that. I don't want that for you. This doesn't exist for you to rate it or to tell somebody else how much better it is than another thing. The gospel is being proclaimed to you in order that you might respond to God in Christ, friends. Again, I'm off my notes. Let me give you another metaphor. If the church 
<laughs> is a dinner table. This is one of my favorite ones. I think about this all the time. Imagine the church being this dinner table, which is actually a phenomenal metaphor. Um, how many of us are, are doing this? Just walking around it in circles. And there's an open chair, and people ask us to take a seat, and we're like, no, 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 I'll think about it. Thanks. And we're like, ooh, that looks gross. I don't like the way they talk to each other. She's cute. You know, how, how many of us do that kind of thing? And we, we never actually just pull up a chair and sit down and commit and become a part of it. When I'm looking at a menu at a restaurant, I judge the menu. When I'm at home and my wife says, how's the food? I say it's great. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, when you're actually sitting at the table, the dynamics of the whole thing change. We're now in this together. This doesn't exist for me to just consume. Food might be there for me to consume, but the table environment with my family is not there for me just to take what I want. It's for me to sit down and enter into the mess of the community. Friends, pull up a chair. The church isn't a worship service to fill you up. Pastors don't exist to make you feel good about your faith. The other people in churches don't exist to make you feel like you belong. God is forming a people, a tribe, and if you're a Christian, you are an indispensable part of her, and every other Christian is an indispensable part of your story too. You and I, brothers and sisters, share an inheritance. We're united in Christ. We represent each other. We each have gifts to offer one another. Jesus is so bent on this that he said the world will know that we are his disciples by how we love each other at a table. Not by how we judge each other or stay protected from each other or work to be slightly better than each other or one-up each other in the coffee that we serve at our church services or the, the alt music that we play that is like slightly cooler than the other church or whatever else. It's by how we love each other. He would also say in John chapter 17 that our unity will help the world. You should read John chapter 17. That our unity will help the world to know that God sent Jesus for them, which means that our division will hurt the opportunity to convey to the world that God loves them. There are no churchless Christians. We're just more or less united, more or less living together, more or less faithful to the call of Jesus to be one. You might notice that every single metaphor the Bible uses for the church doesn't make any sense in a hyper-individualistic culture interpretation. You alone, Christian, are not the body of Christ. You alone, Christian, are not the family of God. You alone, Christian, are not the house of God. You alone, Christian, are not the bride of Christ. There is one bride, one body, one family, one building, just as there is one Lord, one spirit, one baptism, one faith. I know that different local churches and groups of churches have disagreements and in some instances are flat out not living like the people of God. I know that. And where Christians are not living like the people of God, where their life together doesn't look anything like that Acts chapter 2 picture, it is heartbreaking and damaging and makes it harder for anyone and everyone to believe that God in Christ loves us. And if you or others have been wounded by gatherings of Christians, then the rest of us should be gentle and kind with you, knowing that if one part of the body suffers, all suffer, and we should work to have our churches be a place of healing and nourishment and a place where trust can be reestablished. And though we have disagreements, overwhelmingly, friends, Christians are actually united. 
There's a group of folks who gather once a month down in the hub. If, if you, the hub is this converted coffee shop space over there. It's open, um, I think, five days a week most of the time if we get here to open it. Uh, and, and you're welcome to just use that anytime. Um, and, and once a month, there, there's this really strange group that I freaking love um, that, that might weird you out if you ever see it. Um, and you're invited to be a part of it and join it. It's called Patristics in Prayer. We read uh, old dead church people and talk about it and pray together and stuff. Um, and, and there's Christians who gather in the hub um, are, are Baptists and Anglican and Catholic and Orthodox and unaffiliated, and we all pray together as one, and we argue cordially about our disagreements. If you go on a mission trip with us, what you'll find is Christians in New York City who are homeless that know the same God that you do. If you go to Guatemala, what you're going to find is people who've grown up their entire lives in Guatemala and the craziest thing happens that you find out when, when, when each of you talk about Jesus, you know him in the way the other talks about him. We're not talking about different gods. We know the same God. It, it, it's as crazy as if I went to Guatemala and I said, I'm married to Anna. And they're like, Anna Leonard? And I said, well, yeah. And they said, oh my gosh, I love her. She's great. I was like, how do you know her? She's like, I've known her my whole life. And I'd be like, that's weird because I'm married to her and she lives like with me. So how do you, I don't think she's been to Guatemala. Actually, she has been to Guatemala, different country. Uh, anyway, but do you know how weird it would be if all of a sudden they started talking and I realized pretty quickly that all the things they're saying, it, it, it occurs to me, we actually know the same person. Like we're not just talking about a name and then have different people in our minds that we actually have the same image. Do you understand how crazy that would be, right? That if you've ever been on mission, have you had that experience? How wild it is that somebody who grows up in a non-Western context in a totally different world than you, uses a to doesn't even use English to understand, and you talk to them about Jesus, and every now and again, words like hallelujah are magnificent because we don't translate that word. It's really beautiful when you're in a room and everybody's singing in different languages and they all say hallelujah at the same time, and it's like, oh, it's heaven for nerds like me. Anyway, um, friends, it is crazy how united the church is. The house, in fact, the, this ministry is a small picture of the unity of the church. Seven different churches from four different denominations support us directly. It's crazy. They don't often work together at all, and they all support the house. And if you consider all the denominations represented by our individual donors, you've got well over 20 different tribes of Christians that are coming together to proclaim the gospel and raise up disciples of Jesus on this campus. And they, they like the things that we teach and talk about, and they all collectively agree. Now, some of them would prefer that I emphasize a little more this or a little more that, but they're like, we're of the same family. We're all going to come to the same table. We just spend too much dang time with our head down. Y'all in this room have so much more in common with the students and crew than you do with Tibetan agnostics. But you spend all your time thinking about how you're different than other Christians. You have so much more in common with virtually any other Christian around the world than you do with like a 1600s Eskimo. But we think we're so different and we don't agree. To prove that tonight, I want us to say together the Apostles' Creed. Does anybody, raise your hand, does anybody say the Apostles' Creed in their churches? up, so five, six, seven, eight, like, okay, so maybe ten. This is going to be great then. Okay, cool. Um, so listen, this creed, it's one of the most universal declarations. It's one or two, depending. It's been number two. It might be becoming number one because it's shorter and it's starting to get used more in uh, what are called, um, like, lower liturgical churches, like low church liturgy churches, which don't do bells and whistles and smoke and candles and stuff, right? They do rock music and lights and haze instead because, you know, uh, the other stuff is totally lame, but our smoke is different because it's called haze or something. I don't know. Um, anyway, 
<coughs> we all got our things. We all got our things. It used to be candles and incense. Now it's third wave coffee. Um, that's what we smell, you know. Um, Okay, but listen, this creed is getting used more and more by, by churches that haven't historically used lots of creeds, but this is so fascinating. Listen, this creed is professed and has been professed by Catholics, Orthodox, which are the two biggest groups, Anglicans, the third biggest group, by, by um, Lutherans, Methodists, Presbyterians. Christians of all stripes have been saying this creed for the past 1,700 years as a faithful profession of what they do believe, as a distillation of the core faith that they profess. It's often started with the question, Christian, what do you believe? And they say, I believe, and they kick into the, the, the creed. Even churches that aren't creedal, like Baptist churches or something that, that wouldn't sort of lean on creeds, would read through the Apostles' Creed and go, we totally agree with all these tenets. And I want you to see this, and I want us to say this together for two reasons. One, actually saying stuff together, like singing stuff together, is practicing with our bodies and with our words unity, which we are so starved for right now. We are so starved for belonging to something. We actually do belong to something bigger. We just stay away from the home and don't go home for dinner. And we, and we, we keep telling each other that it's better outside of the house, that it's better out on your own in the middle of the wilderness figuring out all your own meaning for the world. And we're all anxious and starved and exhausted. And so I want us to practice immunity together, but I also want you to see what Christians for 2,000 years have been professing in an uncomplicated, very mysterious way. And so we're going to put that on the screen. Keely, if you would, would you put the Apostles' Creed on the screen? Friends, I do not want you to believe that Christianity is a, it's like a grab bag. God has made himself known to us in Christ Jesus and is faithful in and through his church. And we're a part of her. And this is what we believe. So I'm going to ask you, could you guys read that? Is that too small? Y'all have good eyesight. You're young, yeah? So we can make it work. <laughs> Sorry. All these, I'm 40 now, so it's all that way. Uh, it, it's tilted. Um, all right, so I'm going to ask you, I'm going to say, Christian, what do you believe? And then we're all going to read this together, okay? Um, Christian, what do you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Friends, this is what Christians believe. Now, for some of you, you get really squirrely at the word Catholic, maybe. It just means universal. Catholics would probably like me to capitalize that, see? in the room, uh, but the, the word originally really is just universal church. When we come, before we come to the table, the communion table in just a minute, um, I want to read a brief section of this wonderful book called The Apostles' Creed. <laughs> um, it's not just that, uh, but it, it does have that included. Um, I, I, partly, I just want to recommend a resource that I think is incredibly helpful, um, and we're starved f for unifying things. 
We spend a lot of time reading campy stuff. So, you know, if I'm a Baptist, I read all the Baptist material. If I'm a Presbyterian, I read the Presbyterian material. If I'm a Catholic, I read the Catholic material. Um, and, and it is really uh, exhausting. And so I just wanted, I want us, I wanted to recommend a material that's pretty unifying that a lot of folks are going to agree with. And I want to I read just a section out of it because I want you to listen to the way that this guy, our brother, and somebody that if you're in Christ, we will share all eternity with. He's a part of our family. This Ben Myers, I've never met him, but we're going to get to know him. He has gifts to offer, and we have gifts to offer him. He, we're doing work here in this town with your family and your friends and your roommates and your classmates and your enemies and your exes that he's not doing. He's got his own calling and his own place. Christ fills his body all in all, and, and his church is incredibly faithful to do God's work throughout the world. We don't, in this little place, do it all. We just do our part. One of the things he did is write this book, and I think it's incredibly helpful. I recommend it for like your core groups or whatever. I want you to listen to the way he talks about the church. Listen to how magnificent he thinks she is and what he has to say about her unity. And can I invite you to think of the church higher than you ever have before as I read this? Jesus gave his life for her and is saving her and will present her radiant before all creation. And if you are a follower of Jesus, you are a part of her. So this is his um, brief exploration of what do we mean by the Holy Catholic Church. At baptism, each believer proclaims that the church is Catholic, and the word simply means universal. It means that there is only one church because there is only one Lord. Though there have been many Christian communities spread out across different times, places, and cultures, they are all mysteriously united in one spirit. Each local gathering of believers is a full expression of that mysterious Catholicity. The church is Catholic because it's a microcosm of a universal human society. In the waters of baptism, all the old social divisions are made irrelevant. The, cult, the church includes every kind of person, rich and poor, male and female, Jew and Gentile, slave and free. Whatever defined a person before is relativized by the new defining mark of membership in the company of Jesus' followers. The 13th century Italian theologian Thomas Aquinas explained that the message of Jesus is universal, quote, because no one is rejected neither lord nor servant, neither male nor female. There's no social barrier that could exclude a person from inclusion in this body. The boundaries of the church are as wide as the human race. Further, the church is Catholic because it preaches a Catholic message. The gospel is not addressed to one particular social class or ethnic group. It is addressed to every imaginable human being. There's nobody in the world for whom the message of Jesus could be irrelevant. One of the most universal aspects of the Christian faith is its translatability. The other great monotheistic traditions, Judaism and Islam, place a high value on preserving the divine message in its original language, whether Hebrew or Arabic. But right from the start, the Christian movement was marked by translation. Jesus himself spoke Aramaic, but the four Gospels are translated, all translated his teaching into the vernacular Greek so that the message would be available to as many readers as possible. Within a remarkably short time, the Christian movement had taken root in many different cultures, each one reading and proclaiming the Gospel message in its own tongue. The message of Jesus is a Catholic message. The message of the gospel is also Catholic in the way that it responds to human plight. The deepest human needs are addressed in the gospel. The message of Jesus doesn't just speak to a special part of life, the moral or spiritual part, for example. It speaks to the whole person, body and soul, individual and social. It is a Catholic message because it embraces the whole person in a word of grace and truth. The gospel is as broad and as deep as the human life itself. It's a Catholic word because it speaks to the whole human condition. Are you with me? A little bit more. But there is an even more radical dimension of Christian Catholicity. 
This is lovely. The greatest barrier that divides human beings from one another is not culture or language or class. The greatest barrier is death. It splits the human family into two classes, the living and the dead. All other social divisions are petty compared to that great division. But in the resurrection, Jesus has stepped across the barrier and restored communion between the living and the dead. He's formed one family that stretches not only out across space, but also across time. The body of Christ is the most inclusive community imaginable because it includes not only those who are now living, but also all believers who have ever lived. The message of the gospel is directed not primarily to individuals, but to this new community. God's plan of salvation all along has been to create one human society as the bearer of the divine image, friends. In that sense, the church isn't just the way people respond to salvation. The church is the salvation. The church is what God has been doing in the world from the, from the beginning. It's the representative microcosm of what God intends for the whole human family. That is why every division between believers is a denial of the gospel. A Christian community is Catholic to the extent that it's always uniting. Wherever we identify a line of division within the human family, the risen Jesus calls us to step across that line in the power of the Spirit. For, quote, there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Let me pray for us and let's take a moment of silence before we come to the table. Father, send your Spirit right now to help us um, to imagine being a part of something so much bigger than we probably have ever dreamed. A family that spans time and even the chasm of death. For those of us who've been wounded by folks who declare your name, help us to know that that is what you mean by, um, by making one of your Ten Commandments not taking your name in vain. And you will stand in judgment over that. And offer my friends who've been wounded in this room hope for a more redemptive experience of family. And may all of us here um, recognize your calling upon our lives to be a part of your great big family and live out that expression within a community and not individually. Not just in, in, in social media posts and with headphones on and worship music and, and privately listening to sermons on our phone or whatever else we're doing privately, but that we are called to live out our faith within a community, God. Help us to believe that and enter into that and give us each uh, steps to take in the, uh, today and tomorrow into how we might um, come to the table. I guess tonight you give us a way to do that too. Lord, I thank you so much for how you address our desire for intimacy and how you call us a bride, how you address our desire for our, our, our struggle with loneliness by inviting us to a family, how you address our desire to do something lasting and good in the world through your building of a, of a, of a house amongst your church, God, and, and how you address uh, the, the overwhelming feeling of not being able to tackle all the things in this world by, by inviting us to be a part of a much bigger body that spans the globe and spans history. Forbid that we go at it alone. Help us to love you and love each other in how we live out our lives with the church. Friends, take just a minute to reflect on um, how you might respond to God in prayer or, or privately. If you'd like to pray with somebody, out back to the left, there's folks who'd like to pray with you and we'll um, come to the table in just a second.